Good morning. Please turn with me to the book of Acts. For our visitors this morning, we are doing a study. We call it a chronological study of the book of Acts, where we are studying through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And where a, um, an epistle is written, in the historical context, we stop and we go out to that epistle and we begin to uh, read that. And by the way, we are in chapter 14 of Acts this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we will do chapter 15, and that will be followed by Galatians. So in one week, we will uh, plan to do the, book of the, the letter to the uh, Galatians. And so I would encourage you this coming week, in the next two weeks, actually, to start going through, read Acts 15, of course, because Galatians will make sense in light of that. But uh, read through uh, Acts 15, but also begin to outline Galatians 1, 2, 3, and so on, so that you can have a head start on that and see how well Dave does in his preaching, or something like that. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you remember the day you were saved? Is that day in your mind a day that is marked in the annals of your history as being a day when you finally understood the gospel and you fell in love with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember that day? Were you in love with him then? Are you in love with the Lord Jesus this morning? I'll tell you something. One of the things that I've noticed in my career as a believer is that there are people who are absolutely, totally sold out, totally in love with the Lord Jesus. And there's something that I can tell you about those people. They were great sinners. <laughs> they were great sinners. And the Bible tells me that that is true. The Bible says that he who is forgiven much loves much. And if we came to a point in our lives where we recognized that we were sinners of the deepest dye, that we deserved to go to hell for our sins, that we were lost without Jesus Christ, and we saw that he paid the full price for our sins, we trusted him as our Savior and our Lord, I'll tell you something, a person like that is in love with Jesus Christ. And I've noticed something about people that came out of that kind of a background where they recognized that truly they were sinners. Truly they love the Lord Jesus if they have been saved and forgiven. The Bible says, as I said, those who are forgiven much love much. Did you realize or do you realize what he saved you from? Think about it. Not only does he forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has delivered us, he has saved us from an eternity in hell. That's what we deserved. If we got what we deserved, we would all be in hell, and rightly so. But he saved us from a life like that, from an eternity like that. The Bible says about hell that its fire is not quenched, and those who are in hell where their worm does not die. Serious, serious words. I have heard of stories, of course, of people who have been in burning buildings. 
or in some kind of a car wreck. And uh, they're saved from the burning building. And they have their life. Or they're saved from the car wreck. In fact, I saw recently on television a, a case where a man was being chased by the police. He was a crook. He was a real wretched guy. And he was being chased by the police. And as he ch- was chased by the police, he crashed his car and was trapped inside it, and the car burst into flames. And the police, at peril to their own life, went up to the car, and the car was totally engulfed in flames. I don't mean just a little bit. Totally engulfed in flames. And they took their baton and, and smashed the windshield on the driver's side and reached in through the flames and pulled the man out to safety and life. This was a crook that they had been chasing. And I thought of it, and I thought, you know, that's like us. We were the crooks. We were the ones who deserved to perish in the flames. And the Lord reached in and delivered us from it all. We have been saved from a wrecked life and from the flames of hell. Are we grateful? And do we sense, as a result of what he has done for us, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives? You know, You've heard stories of people who were rescued from a burning building or something like that. And, and those same people say, you know what, I feel an obligation to my rescuer. I feel a love for that person who risked his life for me. I feel like I owe them my life. And sometimes those people who are rescued live out the rest of their life for that person. That's the same kind of obligation that we should have towards the Lord for what he's done for us. The same kind of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. And so I ask the question again, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love the Lord Jesus? When a true believer senses the enormous debt of sin that he has been forgiven and feels the cleansing of sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is something that takes place in the heart of that believer and changes his whole outlook in life. Our former interests, our former lifestyle, should evaporate and a new love for God and a new love for his people should emerge. Our delight should be to do the Father's will and to do it, uh, whatever that is in our lives. You know, it is disturbing as I look over the years of my Christian life and I have watched people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and yet their interest in life do not change. Their, um, cha- the desires that they had before they professed really haven't changed. The pursuits that they had before they professed faith in Christ really haven't changed. It makes me wonder whether there was ever any change of heart at all in a person like that. It makes me wonder if they really love Jesus at all. What is the focus of our lives today? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what's on his heart. That's what was on his heart when he came to this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this a little bit in the Lord's Supper this morning. He came to do the Father's will. It was an expression of his love for the Father. And if we delight to do the Father's will, if we truly love God, then it will be our delight as well to do the Father's will, whatever the cost, whatever it means in our life. 
Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or has the world and the things of the world taken first place? Are we happy living our lives without being involved in God's service, God's interests? Or are we passionate about the things of God? The Bible warns that the love of many will grow cold in the last days. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that we are in the last days. I anticipate every morning when I wake up to hear that shout that day. When I got up this morning, I expected to hear the Lord shout. It may still come today. But it says that the love of many will grow cold. The church in the last days, the Bible tells us, will be marked by its insipid love. It's a love that is neither hot nor cold. It's neutral. It's lukewarm. How can those who profess faith in Jesus Christ who realize what they have been saved from, how can we remain neutral? How can we remain lukewarm? Our love should be hot, hissing hot, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was certainly passionate about the things of God, and it had a palpable effect on his life and on the lives of others. And as we study in the book of Acts, and particularly in these uh, last chapters of the book of Acts, we see the life of Paul that he was willing to step out of his comfort zone to leave what could have been an easier life behind and uh, step out and be counted for God. And I'll tell you something, a person does not do something like that unless they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They just don't. There's no reason for them to do it. But the reason, the compelling force, if you will, of Paul's passion was his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of Christ constrained him. Jack Graham writes, God is looking for men and women who have a heart for him, who want to take their lives to the next level. Do you want that in your Christian life? To take your life to the next level? Who want to step out of the maze of mediocrity and live for something bigger than themselves. You know, Satan would just love to have the church caught up in mediocrity, caught up in the things of the world, just caught up in life and, and self and everything associated with me, myself, and I. And I want to encourage you this morning to consider the question again. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And how does it affect your life today? As we heard this morning, love for the Lord involves keeping His commandments. And keeping His commandments is not a burden to us. It's not something like, oh, I've got to do God's will today. What a bummer. Love for God involves keeping His commandments. Seeking, Lord, I don't know what you have for me to do today. I have no idea. But you've given me a fresh day. You've given me life today. You've given me 24 hours or, or thereabouts to serve you. You've given me my heartbeats today, my breath today, my food today. You've given me nourishment and strength. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, here am I. Send me. Whatever it is, Lord, take me. Let me be used of you today. And whatever comes your way, take it as the Father's will for your life and live it out for his glory. Live your lives that way. I believe that if you truly want to be used of the Lord, he will lay something on your heart. You know, I believe that the Lord does that on a day-to-day -day basis. I really do. 
I believe that the Lord impresses upon us some need that needs to be met that day. Some person who needs to hear from us and be encouraged that day. Some work of God that needs to be accomplished that day. And some of us listen, and some of us don't. But I believe if you want to be used for, of God, that you will have an ear that is open to hearing what God wants you to do that very day. And he'll lay something on your heart. You know, if you come to him in the morning and say, Lord, I have no idea what you want me to do today. I don't know who you want me to speak to today, but here I am. I'm not much, but just use me. I believe that the Lord will impress upon you that day what he wants you to do. And he will give it to you if you will listen to him. And I believe that as you step out and you trust him and you do his will for you that day, that he will open up a bigger opportunity in the days that come. And as you step into his will and you do even more for him, I believe that the Lord will expand and expand and expand what he wants you to do. And you'll become more and more fruitful in the things of God. That's what the Lord wants us to be, to do, to be fruitful for him in every good work. I believe if you were to stop for just a few minutes and think about it, that the Lord has already spoken to you. I believe that's true right now as we sit here, that the Lord has already spoken to each one of you who know him and love him. He's already told you what he wants you to do. The question is, are you doing it? Have you listened to that still small voice and have you stepped out to take action on what he wants you to do? Someone has a need. Someone needs encouragement. Some work needs to be accomplished. Some people actually hear the voice of the Lord. They're very sensitive to the voice of the Lord. Some are sensitive and take immediate action and they do what the Lord wants them to do. Some hear the voice of the Lord and say, you know what, there's something that really needs to be done at Calvary. There's someone who needs to be ministered to at Calvary. And they say, you know what, I know that's true. And why isn't somebody doing that? And they get all in a huff about it. And they say, you know what? Nobody ever seems to meet those needs. Why is that? Hello? The Lord is knocking at your door. He's speaking to you. I think it's a shame that nobody meets the need of that person. I think it's a shame that nobody visits that person. I think it's a shame that nobody ever ministers to this one or that one or does this or does that. The Lord is speaking to you about that need. Do it. Get involved. Be a part of the program of God. <clears throat> so what has the Lord spoken to you about? What has he already laid on your heart? What has he said to you? Do, you? do you delight to do the will of the Lord Jesus? I hope you do. I hope you, you really sense that the Lord wants to use you. We've talked about this in past weeks, that the Lord not only saved you, not by your good works, but he saved you for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so it's very clear to me from Scripture that we don't get saved by doing good things, but after we are saved, we do good things because he prepared the path for us to walk down. And we should be walking on that path, whatever it is. And it may not be easy. And it may be uncomfortable for us to do it. I don't think it was easy for Paul, do you? In fact, as we look at the passage today, it wasn't very easy at all. Whatever he wants you to do, do it. Paul heard the voice of the Lord, recognized the need to get out of his comfort zone, and Paul with Barnabas launched out in faith, believing God would direct their steps. I love this passage in Acts 14. 
in fact, as you go through all of the missionary journeys of Paul, I'm amazed at them, quite honestly. They didn't even have a road map. Do you know that? You would think that if they're going out on a missionary journey, that they would have the whole thing mapped out, charted out, approved by the elders, stamped with the, with the uh, ecclesiastical stamp, and they'd go forth in that order. They didn't have that. They just went out, and they trusted the Lord to direct them day by day. They didn't have a full-scale plan in front of them. They simply took one step at a time and then listened for the voice of the Lord for the next step. It's great. <laughs> it's wonderful. What step has the Lord taken you or told you to take? What step is it? Take the first step, and then he'll tell you what the second step is. Okay? Take the first step. If you're going to grow in your Christian walk and grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, take the first step. Let God accomplish great things through you. And as a first priority, seek to serve the Lord. All right, let's see where we are in our journey here. Let's take a look at the last verse of chapter 13. Well, I'll go back just a little bit before that. Um, chapter uh, 13 and verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul and Barnabas were expelled from Perga in Pamphylia. Sometimes the Lord actually directs through very positive means, and certainly at the beginning of the missionary journey, we have that. The, uh, those who were in leadership at Antioch got on their faces before the Lord. They fasted, they prayed, they listened to the voice of the Lord. The Holy Spirit indicated to them who they should send, and in a very positive way, their hands were laid on them, and they were sent out uh, to the, to the uh, first missionary journey. Very positive. Sometimes the Lord leads that way. Sometimes the Lord leads in a very negative way. But it's still the leading of the Lord. And we have that case here. Negative circumstances in life. They're preaching to the, the gospel and the Jews of the region rise up and stir up um, prominent people of the city and they boot them out of the, the city. Paul and Barnabas took that as a very clear indication that the Lord wanted them to move on. And so they did. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know clearly that the Lord was leading them. And they moved on to the town of Iconium. It also says they were filled with joy. Why? Why would they be filled with joy at this situation? Because they were in the will of the Lord. They were seeking to do the Father's will. And out of love for the Father, they simply said, Lord, we'll do whatever you want us to do. And as the Lord brought about circumstances like this, they said, fine. Lord, you want us to go somewhere else? We'll go. We're your servants. Just direct us. Tell us where you want us to go. And they went to the next city, and they were filled with joy um, as a result. All right. Go back to the uh, map at the back of your Bible for just a moment, just so you can again see where, where we're talking about. On my map, it's in orange, the first missionary journey. I don't know what color you have for yours, but... I'm sure it's all different in every Bible we have here. There's nothing inspired about the color of the, of the arrows. All right, so 
if you take a look at your map, they'd gone through Cyprus, they went up to Perga in Pamphylia, so we're kind of in this lower section of Asia Minor here, and then they move up north to the next, um, the next area, okay? So Iconium is next. Let's take a look at Acts 14 now, and we'll read the first few verses. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra or Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Well, it's a little further than we want to go, but let's just stop there for now. So at Iconium, the missionaries first preached the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue that was in town. And as a result of the preaching, a great many, it says, of Jews and Gentiles believed. And so we have the beginning of the church there in Iconium. Many believed. And so Paul's immediate reaction to that is to begin to make disciples. And we'll see that as we go on through the book or through the chapter. Now, it says that the Lord confirmed the word of the missionaries with signs and wonders. And so we're going to stop here for a minute and talk about this. When Moses went back to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel from bondage, God, God not only gave him a message to deliver to the people of Israel, but he gave, them, gave him miracles to confirm that God had called Moses for this work of deliverance. These signs were God's stamp of approval upon Moses and upon his work. When Jesus began his public ministry, God confirmed his words by his works. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. His works proved who he was. They were God's stamp of approval uh, upon the Lord Jesus and the work he was doing. Now Paul has entered into a new territory, and it's a new message to Jews in Iconium. And God confirms the message that Paul is bringing with signs and wonders. These signs, they would be miracles, um, and, and wonders were God's stamp of approval upon Paul and the message that he was bringing to them. Signs and wonders were for a specific time and place and should not be considered the norm for today. They are not the norm for today. Now, God, of course, can do whatever he wants to do. God is not limited in any way. And God can um, do something miraculous if he chooses to do. It's not his normal uh, mode of operation in our day and time. We are not in a transition period of the church as they were. The church has been well established. It was in its infancy at this time. And since the message of the gospel was a radical shift in God's program for the world, its preaching was accompanied by signs and wonders. God was verifying that it was from him. They weren't just making it up on their own. Once the early church was established and the New Testament was written, 
the need for signs and wonders ceased, and so they did. There are many people today who seek signs and wonders or miracles of every sort. But let me ask you the question, whose ministry needs to be verified today? Whose ministry needs to be this kind of verification? And what new message do we have today? It's the old message of the gospel that the apostles preached. We have the written word of God today, and it is sufficient for us. Now, the missionaries recognized it was, again, the will of the Lord to move on. How did they know this? Well, they learned of a plot to kill them. They had great success in this town, and we, as we read, a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Now, the opposition started very early in their ministry here in Iconium, but they stayed quite a while, it says. The Jews poisoned the minds of the unbelieving Gentiles against the brethren, and persecution began. I'm going to stop here for a second. Here, the apostles are called brethren. In fact, the believers there are called brethren. Brethren. It's a simple name, and it indicates a family bond, a family tie. If you're a believer this morning, you're my brother. You're my sister. Like it or not. <laughs> you are. Brother or sister. We have a family tie. We have the same father. He is God. God is our father. We are in the same family. And we should all bear the family likeness. We should all be like the Lord in our love for one another as well. We should all love one another, the Bible says. If your love for the Lord has grown cold, then I will guarantee you that your love for the brethren has also grown, grown cold. If your love for the brethren has grown cold, it's a clear indication that your love for God has grown cold too. You know that? You can't separate the two. John, the, uh, in the epistles of John, 1 John as a matter of fact in particular, he really emphasizes this, the love of the brethren is an indication of our love for God. He even asks the question, which is really riveting. He says, how can you love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love the brothers who you, whom you can see? Ooh, ouch. But it's a, it's a good question because they are directly linked. Our love for one another is directly linked to our love for God. And our love for God is directly linked to our love for the brethren. And so if we've grown cold in one or the other, we've really grown cold in both. If we do not have love for one another, how can we love God? Although there was great progress in the gospel here, the unbelieving Jews caused the whole city to be divided over the gospel message. Boy, wouldn't that be great? To have such an impact in a city that just split the city in two, some siding with uh, the unbelievers and some siding with the Christians. But boy, I'll tell you something. When you've split people like that, you know what side they're on. You know who's who. You know who are believers and you know who aren't believers. And you don't have this kind of sludge in the middle of, I, I don't know where these people stand. Are they truly saved or not? You know, Do they just accept the fact that there are Christians there? No, they were divided. You're either for Christ or you're against him in this city. It's good. It's really better. In fact, isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ said about the church in Laodicea? I wish you were hot or cold. 
I wish you were one or the other. At least we know where you stand. And not be lukewarm. In this case here, it was very clear where these people stood. When you don't agree with your opponent, there are several ways you can take care of your opponent. One of them is to eliminate them. And that's what they wanted to do here. And so they plotted to kill Paul and Barnabas. And the missionaries took the death threat seriously and accepted it as the will of the Lord to move on to another city. They said, okay, our lives are at stake here at this point. Were they running in fear? I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because they came back to this city shortly after this. I don't think they were afraid for their life. I think they just simply saw this as being an indication of the Lord's will to move on. There's a death threat. It's real. It's serious. Let's move on. Leave the believers behind. They can trust in the Lord. We'll move on to the next city. Our calling, our mission is to get the gospel out to the world, to the cities surrounding here. There are still people that need to hear the gospel. And so they went out. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 10, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And so they're following a good biblical principle here. Where did they go next? Well, let's take a look at verse 6 again. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of um, Lyconia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So then we come to um, Lystra, and there's a miracle that happens here. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Wow. Paul saw this man listening to him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and he healed him right there on the spot. This is a man who had been crippled from birth. Now, some of you medical experts here realize that when somebody, somebody is crippled like this, that all of their muscles are atrophied. We had a man in our assembly as I was growing up who had been a victim of polio, a serious um, uh, disease that had actually caused him to be paralyzed from the waist down. He had no use of any part of his body from the waist down. And uh, it was uh, an incredible thing to see him and to see his legs, he had been um, an invalid for, for a number of years um, by the time I met him. And I saw his legs, and they were just like bones with skin painted on them. I mean, that's all that, that he had. He had no strength in his legs whatsoever. And that was the c- case of this man here as well. There was no strength at all. And yet this miracle was so full and so complete that the man stood up and leaped and walked. And so all of the muscles and the sinews and all the stuff that goes with it in your uh, leg um, came together immediately and uh, he was healed. And he leaped. (laughs) No doubt for joy, huh? It was clearly a miracle. Unlike so many so-called healers today, many of which have been uh, exposed as complete frauds, this was a genuine miracle that resulted in complete and immediate strength to the whole lower body of this man he went from an atrophied limp leg invalid to a leaping walking fully healed man so great was this miracle and the people of the city recognized it as being a great miracle that they assumed that only a god could do this 
And because they were caught up in idolatry and worshipped idols, they said, well, then it must be Zeus and it must be Hermes who have come in bodily form and are visiting us here in our city and have healed this man. That's really what they said. The city of Lystra was filled with idolaters, people who worshipped false gods. And because of their religious beliefs, they said Barnabas was Zeus or Jupiter. And Paul was Hermes or Mercury. Did you know that our planets were named after uh, idols, gods? The people of this area, they worshipped these gods. Now, in this city, they had a temple uh, for Zeus. Zeus, was, uh, who was also called Jupiter, was believed to be the king of the gods. He was the greatest of all gods. And uh, they believed that Zeus made the heavens and everything in them lights and the planets and the moon they believed that he was the god who did all of these things that's who they thought barnabas was i think barnabas was probably a taller more robust man than paul we often think of paul as being a small man of short stature and um, yet he was the speaker uh, in this particular case here and interestingly enough hermes also known as mercury was known to be the the communicator among the gods he was the spokesman for the gods and so they called uh, Paul um, Mercury or Hermes he was the messenger of gods the priest of the Zeus temple said wow the gods have visited us we have worshipped these gods and here they are and evidence of that is that they just healed this man in our presence and so he set up kind of like a parade and uh, they were going to have this parade go down to the temple of Zeus and they were going to offer sacrifices to them and put um, garlands on them. And so let's take a look at what it says here about that in verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the city to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes but when the apostles barnabas and paul heard this they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out and saying men why are you doing these things we also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living god who made the heaven and the earth the sea and all things that are in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. When Barnabas and Paul understood what, they, uh, what these people thought and what they were about to do, they were abhorred by it and they spoke out against it. He says here that God allowed the nations to follow their own heart's desire in the past. What does this mean? Well, God didn't strike people dead every time they worshipped false gods. He could have, but he didn't do it. Instead, he chose to have a quiet witness among the nations. The Gentiles were not under restraint of the law. They had no prophets sent to them to uh, speak to them, uh, to turn from the folly of idolatry. 
But now God was bringing his message to them through the apostles. And he has witnesses today. It's called the church. We're part of the church. We are his witnesses today. That's our calling. And we are called today to bring the gospel message to those who are in idolatry, to those who have turned their hearts away from the Lord, to to those who have not heard the word of the Lord yet, to those who are caught up in Satan's lies and his bondage. We are called to preach the gospel, not necessarily called to be preachers, but we are called to make known in our circle of friends and our circle of contacts the truth that will set them free from their sins. Some of you I know are doing that and you're listening to the voice of the Lord and you're hearing the Lord say, speak to that man. Speak to that friend at work. Speak to that relative of yours. Speak to those people about the Lord. And some of you are doing that. Some of you are doing that on a daily basis. And I praise God for you listening to the voice of the Lord. You say, you know what? I have to. Why do you have to? Because I love the Lord. And I want others to love Him too. I want people to know that Jesus saves. I want people to know that they can have their sins forgiven. I want people to know that they can escape the fires of hell. I want people to know that Jesus saves. I love Jesus, and I want others to love him too. Paul makes it clear here that Zeus is not the king of gods. There is only one God, brothers and sisters. Don't be caught up in all the world's nonsense about all roads lead to heaven. Don't be caught up in the the world's view that any religion is okay as long as you're sincere. Don't be caught up in the world's view that uh, there are many gods. There is one God, and Him only you shall serve. There is one God, and He is the living God, and that is who Paul is talking about here. The Lord is the living God, and it is He who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And so he takes, a, he, he takes a, a stone, as it were, and he throws it at the feet of Zeus, and it breaks this idol and, and causes it to be cast down. It is God, the living God, who made the heavens and the earth, not Zeus. He says that they came to preach to them, to turn them from these useless things to serve the living God. Wow, that's not politically correct, is it? Woo! Here here they are coming in as visitors to this city and the first thing out of his mouth here is that your gods are useless. (laughs) Not politically correct. You know, we have become so politically correct that our mouths are sealed. It's ridiculous. I see the way people are, are so afraid to speak the truth. Now they spoke the truth in love. They saw that these people had wholly devoted themselves to useless idols who were leading them to hell. And he spoke out against it. Praise God, and so should we. Paul was not afraid to speak the truth in love, and neither should we. It's interesting, too. There's a real contrast in this um, chapter. Just a couple of chapters ago, we read about Herod. And Herod was, was pontificating to this crowd of people, and they were trying to get in good with Herod once again. And they were saying, Oh, the voice of a God, the voice of a God. And Herod kind of went, yeah, I am, you know. And God struck him. God slew him because he took the glory that belongs to God for himself. And here we have a contrast with Paul and with Barnabas when they even 
when it came to their attention, when they understood what these people were about to do, to offer sacrifices to them, they were abhorred by it. And they cried out, don't do this. We're mere mortals like you. We're just men. We're flesh and blood. They took no credit, no glory for themselves. There is one God, and, it, and he is the living God. And he told them about him. How clearly they understood their place before God. How clearly they understood that honor and praise, adoration and worship belongs to one, and that is Jesus Christ. Their actions showed how much higher in position the Lord has in comparison to them. And we should follow in their steps. Now, I mentioned that God has always had a quiet, yet very eloquent witness um, to, to mankind. His daily provision, he talks about this here, his daily provision of all of our necessities, such as food and water, satisfy our needs. And his provision is a visible demonstration of his invisible attributes. That's what Romans says. Later, Paul writes about this very thing again. And he says, "...is what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, they stop the sacrifice, but just barely, and trouble is brewing again. Now, although the missionaries have seen many people saved and growing as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, it isn't long until persecution shows up once again. The Jews who persecuted Paul and Barnabas in uh, Antioch and Iconium weren't through. They weren't satisfied with just expelling them from their city, getting rid of them from their city. They wanted to get rid of them for good. And that's what they tried to do here. And they stirred up the crowds to try to uh, kill them. Well, let's take a look at that. Then the Jews from Antioch, and Icon- verse 19, and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. You know, these men had to travel quite a distance to do this. They had to come from, uh, I, I think it's uh, 20 or 30 miles that they had to travel. It was not easy journey, but they were passionate, passionate about their cause. And their cause was to destroy Paul and Barnabas. They were zealous for their cause, determined to get the job done. And you know, men are often more passionate and more zealous for an evil cause than Christians are for the cause of Christ. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. What a fickle crowd. These were the same guys who just moments before or days before were wanting to worship them as gods. And these guys come along and say, let's kill him. Okay. <laughs> and they stirred him up to kill him. Same people. What a fickle crowd. One minute they want to worship, next minute they want to kill him. But they didn't kill him. The believers who trusted the Lord and Lyster came out and no doubt prayed and Paul rose to his feet. And what did he do? He went right back into the city. It wasn't that he was fearful. He went right back into the city, right back into the fray. And I'm, as I read this chapter, 
It's really, really great. Well, one other thing I want to mention to you too. Paul in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, lists all of the trials, all of the difficulties, all of the persecutions that he faced as he sought to get the gospel out into the Gentile world. And he's listed this one here as well. He says, once I was stoned. It's part of the cost of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Part of the cost of getting the gospel to you and to me was the stoning here in um, this town. But this was the Father's will for Paul. Could it be the Father wanted Paul to be stoned almost to death? Yeah, it was. Paul loved the Lord and delighted to do the Father's will even at great personal cost. Once again, it was clear to Paul and Barnabas that the time had come for them to move on to the next town. And as I read through this chapter, I'm thrilled with several things about it, and I just want to share a couple of them with you. It is clear to me that Paul and Barnabas had a complete and unabashed trust in the Lord, not only for their own personal direction, which is clear from the passage, but also something that's, that's really not clearly mentioned, but it's there all the same. It's that they trusted the Lord to care for his church. It's great. It really is great. They were willing to go into a town and see people saved. And within a few short days, in many cases, they left a fledgling church to stand on its own. Wow. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we have evidence of that here in this chapter. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A church that has Jesus is in very good hands indeed. At this point in time, it would have been ineffective to continue to preach here. And so he moved on. You know, I I think, I don't know about you, but I think that takes great spiritual insight to see that the work has come to a point where it's done. His work is done. He can't do any more here. It's time to move on. Great spiritual insight. And uh, he knew his work was finished. He moved to the next city. The Lord seemed to do that as well. He would go. He would, he would uh, preach. He would perform miracles in various cities. He would preach the gospel of the kingdom. And some would accept, some would reject, and he would move on. There are some who still have not heard and need to hear the word of God to believe. And so off to Derby they went. Let's read verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby, and made many disciples... They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So when they got to Derby, they preached the gospel, and many became disciples. There's another name for believers there. Did you catch it? Disciples. We have seen so far that the Christians were, well, the believers were called Christians in Antioch. Just in the same chapter, we saw that they are called brethren, and here they are called disciples. A true Christian is truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple is a follower of a master. And the master that we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, having come to the end of their travels in Derby, Paul and Barnabas turn right around. They retrace their steps. They go back to the cities where they had seen persecution. And they went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It demonstrates great courage on the part of the disciples, on the part of the apostles, They had met with great opposition in in these cities, and yet they went back. Now, there was a purpose 
for their for the return visit. And I want you to see if you can see actually their purposes, but see what the purposes for their return visit were. Let's start with verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So let's take a look at what their purposes were. First, to strengthen the believers. Really what this means is they went back to make firm these believers firm in their faith. We would call it basic follow-up today. These, peop- these, these Christians were brand new believers. And uh, as believers, they heard and understood the gospel, but they really didn't have a long time to spend with them. And so Paul went back and in probably just a few lessons went through BCT, ICT, ACT, and all the rest of it. Okay? He didn't have all of that, but they taught the fundamentals of the faith to these believers so that they were strong in the faith. Strengthened the souls just means to strengthen the person in their uh, faith in God. It says to exhort them to continue in the faith. This was to encourage them to stand true to God's word and never give up. I'll tell you, there was great persecution in the early church. And Paul went back and just said, look, you've trusted the Lord. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Follow in his steps carry on keep going in uh, your walk with him never give up it was to alert them to the fact that they would go through sufferings and trials as believers if somebody said to you when they preach the gospel if you trust in the lord jesus christ today you will have a rosy life the rest of your life everything is going to go well you'll never have everything is going to be uh gloria in excelsis you know everything is going to be just wonderful it's a bed of roses. They were lying to you. I hope you weren't deceived. Okay? Let me tell you something. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you are truly out and out for the Lord, you will have persecution. You will suffer persecution. You will have opposition. If you take a true stand for the Lord, you will suffer. Guaranteed. The Lord Jesus said that. If they did this to your Lord and Master, will they not do the same to you? Of course they will. If you are truly a believer, you will suffer persecution. And he, he wanted to tell them that. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Are you glad for tribulations? Well, not really glad, but I take joy in tribulations. Isn't that what uh, James said? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing this, what is it that he wants us to know? But the testing of your faith produces patience. God is in the business of changing our character. He wants us to be different than we were before. He wants us to be like His Son. And the only way that we can be like His Son is if we go through these trials and tribulations to change our character. That's what He's after. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be like His Son. Okay? Cooperate with Him in all of these things. Then it says to appoint elders in every church. Wow. I tell you, every time I read that, I'm just stunned. The qualifications of elders had not been put in print in the Scriptures. First Timothy had not been written yet. Titus had not been written yet. And so Paul knew the qualifications of elders, what they would be. And so we, we have him going back to these fledgling churches and recognizing elders, plural. Did you notice that? In every city. It's amazing there were elders so soon. But remember, it is the Lord who is building his church. 
Jesus said that. I will build my church. And he's doing that here. And he raises up those whom he's called. It's also clear from this passage that there is a plurality of elders. It's not a pastor in every city. It's a plurality of elders who are responsible for shepherding the flock. Each church in each city had elders, plural. This is the New Testament pattern. Now, really, it's a wonderful testimony uh, to the love and care that the Lord has for his church to appoint elders in every city so early in the development of the church. Here these men were thrown into a position. They had to, one of the qualifications of an elder, by the way, is that they have to desire the work. So really they weren't thrown into it. They desired the work as well. But they're in this position where they have to learn by experience and by demands upon them how to develop a rich and deep relationship, fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could shepherd his sheep. There were no church growth seminars. There are no Christian books. Biblical eldership by Alexander Strauch had not been written yet. No other churches to consult. No ecclesiastical hierarchy to tell them what to do. They had each other, elders, an open Bible, whatever they had of the Bible, and the Lord. That's all they needed. That's all they needed. It was the best place for them to be. He also fasted and prayed with them, or Barnabas and and Paul fasted and prayed with them, and then they commended them to the Lord. It's the best way to part. No greater security than being left in the Lord's hands. So finally they came... In Acts uh, 14, they finished their trip. They went back to Antioch. Let's just read through the rest of the chapter here. And after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to um, Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So remember, they listened to the voice of the Lord at the beginning. They went forward. They have now completed the work that they had been sent to do. When they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Clearly, missionary work was on the minds of the early church. Not only did it enter their minds, but they acted upon it. They heard the voice of the Lord calling them to send some out to a hostile region, and they sent them out at his command. They loved the Lord. And it showed by their actions. I started my message this morning by saying that I believe that the Lord has been speaking to you about something he wants you to do. And I know some of you are listening with open ears and you're saying, Lord, I'm ready. I want to be used. I'm ready for anything you throw my way. Give me everything you want me to do, Lord, and I'll do it. And you're faithfully witnessing, faithfully living for him, faithfully spreading the gospel where you are and how you can. Some, I believe, have grown cold. Some have grown indifferent to the Lord. Some have turned a deaf ear to his voice. But I'm telling you right now, he's still calling you to come and serve him. Come and faithfully hear him and listen to him and do his will. Do you remember the young man, Samuel? He was lying in bed one night and he thought he heard Eli's voice. Samuel. And he got out of his bed. He went running into Samuel's room and he said, Here I am, what do you want? Samuel said, I mean, Eli says, Go back to bed, I didn't call you. So he goes back to bed, just about ready to fall asleep. Samuel, he thought it was Eli's voice again. He got up and he ran to Eli's room. Eli, what do you want? 
trying to sleep here, son. Go back to bed. It wasn't me. And then finally, Eli clued in and recognized that it must have been the voice of the Lord. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's what our attitude should be every time we lie down, we get up in the morning and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I want to teach you the closing song. Some of you may know it, some of you may not. And I just want you to hear the song throughout the week. I don't even know if I have the song right, but it's good enough for this morning. It goes like this. Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Speak, Lord, I'm listening to you. Teach me to hear what you want me to hear and to do what you want me to do. It's a children's song, actually. It's a story about Samuel. But it should be a story of our life as well. Here's how it goes. Excuse my voice. Um, What you want me to do? Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Speak, Lord, I'm listening to you. Teach me to hear what you want me to hear and to do what you want me to do. Simple, simple little melody. Let's try it together and sing it through the week. Speak, Lord, for your servant. Let me, let me go back. I have, to get, I have to end it to get back to that part again. To do what you want me to do. Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Speak, Lord, I'm listening to you. Teach me to hear what you want me to hear and to do what you want me to do. Again, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Speak, Lord, I'm listening to you. Teach me to hear what you want me to hear and to do what you want me to do. Now that you know it, let's sing it one more time. Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Speak, Lord, I'm listening to you. Teach me to hear what you want me to hear and to do what you want me to do. Lord, we make that our prayer this afternoon that you would speak to us. Teach us what you want us to do. Lord, speak for your servant hears. Teach us what you want us to do. Teach us to hear what you want us to hear, Lord, and to do what you want us to do. We pray, Lord, that we would not miss the greatest opportunity of our lives to be at the very center of your will and to do the things that you have prepared for us to do beforehand. Lord, we pray that we might be servants who take the word of God seriously, live out our lives fully and completely. Lord, cause us to be fruitful in every good work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.